I don't think you can really understand what leadership involves unless you've been in some sort of crisis. I don't mean sort of medical crisis, I mean any sort of crisis, because I think it's then that you need the leadership the most. And I've never really been in any sort of situation like this. A warm welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus, an award-winning social enterprise dedicated to supporting leaders with babies and young children. And I believe it is not okay that in the UK today, if you have children and want to care for them, it really impacts on your chances for career progression to the most senior roles. But I believe that together we can change this. So with this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support to continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Suhana Ahmed, who is also one of our Leaders Plus Fellows 2020. Her place has been part sponsored by the NHS London Leadership Academy. Suhana is a psychiatric consultant. She leads an inpatient board for all people many of whom have sadly caught COVID-19 and some of whom have sadly died. We have a very frank discussion about how leading in a crisis has shaped her as a leader, how hand cream is part of the essential leadership toolkit in a crisis and how she has talked to her young son about her experience caring for COVID-19 patients. She shares honestly her experience of postnatal depression as well. Personally, I found our conversations humbling, inspiring, and despite the subject, quite uplifting. I hope you do too. So a very warm welcome to the podcast, Suhana. Um, Really lovely to have a chance to have a more in-depth conversation with you. Why don't we start with you telling us who you are, who is in your family, and also what you do on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely. My name's Suhan Ahmed. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I'm an old-age mental health psychiatrist. I'm dual-trained, so I am also an adult psychiatrist as well. And I've been a consultant now for about three years. In terms of home life, I'm married. I have a little boy called Daniel, who is seven and is trying to be homeschooled at home at the moment and my husband is trying to work from home so my husband has had most of the sort of homeschooling responsibility Mm. Um, whereas I have been at work more than he has. Mm, I can imagine because of your key worker of course. So tell me Suhana we're recording this at the time of the COVID-19 crisis how have the last few weeks been for you? So I think it's been a really sort of long journey. So I kind of think back to when it all started and I think it was probably beginning of May when it all started. And the first, we'd heard lots of things on the news and so on, but my first sort of real contact with it was when I got a call on a Sunday afternoon from my ward manager. So I work on a ward with 16 beds, all patients over 75. They're a mixture of people with dementia, but also with functional problems. So depression, psychoses, those sorts of things. We had had a few unwell patients in the past week, but hadn't really thought of it. And then on a Sunday, I got a call from my ward manager, very panicked, telling me that we had had two patients that had tested positive. So that was sort of the first contact I had with it. She sounded incredibly panicked, didn't know what to do. It was the first sign of it in the trust. So there was no real protocols and things like that. 
So I decided to come in on that Sunday afternoon. So I got the call at about three o'clock and I came onto the ward at about five o'clock, I think. And I'd sort of spent the day with my little boy and my nieces. But there was something about the tone of my ward manager's voice that made me think, actually, I probably need to go in. And when I suggested it, she didn't say no. So for me, that was a sign that actually she needed support and she needed me to be there. So that was the very first contact we had with it. Over the next sort of week, we then had sort of about four or five more patients that tested positive. A couple of them that were then transferred to the acute hospital because they were very unwell. And we had a couple of deaths as well, which was very difficult. So that was sort of the first scar. And then there was a quieter period. So there was a period of about two weeks where things seemed to settle. And our patients that had tested positive were isolated and then improved and came out of isolation. And it sort of felt a lot calmer. We all breathed and thought it was over. And then sort of three weeks after that, we then had another. So we had one patient test positive and then within the next sort of 24 hours had about four test positive. In the last few weeks, things have settled again. But what we have seen is our last four or five admissions have been COVID related. So the impact of COVID. So we've seen lots of the impact on what isolation has been like for older people in terms of their support networks, in terms of the input they get from their community teams. So our last sort of four admissions have been related to that. And so I think what we're seeing now, to a certain extent, is the aftermath of lockdown and the restrictions that were put in place. Mm. You sound incredibly calm and collected talking about a very intense period. But take us back to that moment where you first realised that this was hitting the place that you worked and the people that you served. I think that's a really good point. I think before that, we'd seen it on the news. We'd seen it sort of them talking about ITU and A&E. And I think naively, I didn't really think it would impact us. I'm not sure why. It's because I think the other specialties were more in, in the sort of limelight. So on that Sunday, it felt surreal. I'd just been, so it was really nice weather. I'd been in the garden playing with my nieces and my little boy. And then I got this call from my ward manager and it only really hit me when I got onto the ward because you could sense the anxiety as soon as you walked onto the ward. So, you know, when the nurses saw me, they visibly looked so relieved and sort of just flogged me. So it was really when I walked onto there that I felt a sense of, oh my God, this is really happening. Up until then, I don't think I'd experience it. And... We can obviously cut anything that you say now out if you don't feel comfortable in hindsight. So did you feel you're obviously an experienced leader, you're, you stand with two feet in life, if you don't mind me saying. Mm. Did you, at that moment, being faced with this really challenging situation, did you feel confident? No, no, I felt the opposite. Before I did psychiatry, I worked in A&E for a lot of years. So I am used to stabbings. I'm used to shootings. I work sort of in East London at a trauma hospital. So I've seen horrendous things and I've seen lots and lots of trauma. But this felt very different from that. It felt like a different sort of trauma. It felt like a different sort of trauma. It felt... It just felt different. And I think it was more, I didn't feel confident. I felt scared, but that was because I sensed everyone else's anxiety. So I don't think it was just because I felt the anxiety as I walked onto the ward. And I 
didn't have a huge knowledge about COVID. I hadn't had a lot to do with it. For one of the first times being a consultant, I felt a little bit out of my depth. I suddenly thought, oh my God, everyone is looking to me and I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. So it was that sort of feeling. Mm. And well, you still have a young son at home. How did you explain to him what was happening? It has been really difficult with Daniel. We had him in the key worker school for one week because it was open and we could. We then decided to pull him out because my husband was working from home and we sort of sat down and had a discussion about it and decided we were happy to have him at home. I guess the other part of the story, like you say, is Daniel. So it's he's seven. He understands what's going on. Um, before sort of we went into lockdown, everyone was talking about the virus. They had been told to wash their hands lots of times. They weren't allowed to use the fountains at school. So in those first few weeks, Dan was very anxious and very nervous. He talked a lot about worrying about me dying because he knew I was looking after people with the virus. He needed me to stay with him when he fell asleep at night. He would get very tearful about things. So I knew that it was impacting on him. And I guess one of my biggest challenges was how I protected him from that. And there was another sense of not being very confident on how I was supposed to do that or what the right way was. And I'm, you know, I'm a bit of an academic, so I look up answers. I find the answers in books a lot of the time. And suddenly I was at this point where I just thought, I don't really know how to do this with Daniel. So we had very basic conversations about it and there was lots and lots of reassurance. And what I tried to do is when I came home, he would know how long I was home for. So I would say, well, mummy's home tonight, but then she'll have to go back to work in the morning again, but she'll be back. So tried to sort of carve some time out for him. But I could sense the anxiety. I could sense that he was worried about me. And, you know, he would say to me, I don't want you to die. He's at a, you know, a difficult age anyway, and he'd stopped seeing his friends. So it was such lack of normality for him. And then he had me going off every day and coming back exhausted and sometimes tearful and overwhelmed by the day, but having to try and shield him from it. Mm. So it felt like I was leading two parallel lives. So I would have me at work and then I would have me at home. And I sort of felt I was expected to have those two very separate lives and not let them impact each other and mix. But inevitably, I found that they sort of blended into one, really. Hmm. It's really interesting because you've been catapulted to be a leader in a crisis situation with everyone looking up to you for guidance. Do you think this has changed you? I think it's changed the way that I perceive a leader. I don't think you can really understand what leadership involves unless you've been in some sort of crisis. I don't mean sort of medical crisis, I mean any sort of crisis, because I think it's then that you need the leadership the most. And I've never really been in any sort of situation like this. So I think it has changed me. I think it's changed how I perceive being a leader. It's changed how I think about my work and my personal life and how I've always tried to sort of keep them quite separate. But I realised that given the job that I do, at some point there is going to be some overlap, like on that Sunday. I'm really glad I came in. People would say that I sort of cross boundaries 
but I knew that I needed to be on the ward on a Sunday. That's what was needed. And actually, they needed me more there than Daniel needed me at home. So I think it's made me think a lot about about my personal life and my professional life. And like I say, I think I've learned lots of key lessons on being a leader. I've jotted some of them down. I don't know if you wanted me to go through them. Yeah, please share. So the first thing I've got is, so leadership learning point one, I've got sometimes you do just have to drop things and be present as a leader, especially if you're on the front line. And again, that was my first experience on the Sunday. And I know that they were so relieved to see me. And actually, I didn't really do a huge amount. I listened to what they were saying. And then we all sat down and we all just sort of reflected on things. And oh, I took in biscuits, which is exactly what they needed. So I guess that's my first point. My second point is that I've realised that in a crisis, there's a balance between sort of the pastoral support that you provide, but also the more practical and systemic things that you had to do. So on that Monday evening, I listened, but then I sort of sat down with a piece of paper and I said, what do we need to do? And what do I need to highlight to sort of the exec team? There's a balance between those sort of two things. Point three I've put is how important structure was and how important it has been in the last of six to eight weeks. And by that, I mean, we usually have weekly handover meetings. We were having daily handover meetings. So every morning at nine, everyone that was working would get together and we were meeting about how many patients were positive, what we were doing about them. And then at the end of that meeting, I would say, right, so what can I do? Or what are the main issues to flag up? And I think that really set the tone for the day. And I think it being first thing in the morning was really helpful. I learned that leadership is about leading everyone sometimes. And I mean my staff, but also my patients. I obviously don't line manage everyone on my ward. They have different line managers, but so much of it was about supporting the nursing staff and my healthcare assistants who to be honest, are the ones that have the closest contact with the patients. They're the ones that are washing them and bathing them. So they potentially are the people that are most at risk. So it was about leading that whole team. And it wasn't just about doctors. I guess my next point is anxiety. So that has been an issue the whole way. Anxiety about PE, anxiety about taking it home to your kids and your families. And I've realised there are two steps to that. I think one is acknowledging the anxiety. I completely acknowledge that that a lot of the staff were anxious. I was anxious and what their reasons were. But I guess the second part of that is somehow actioning that. So I acknowledge their anxiety. I said, okay, so what should we do? So it wasn't just about acknowledging it. It was about trying somehow to have some action from that. So it felt as though... I was taking those things on board. And even though I might not be able to solve them completely myself, I was either going to other people or talking to other people and somehow sort of signposting it was a big part of it. Sorry, if I can just add something to that. I think it's really interesting, the point around anxiety, because of course, right now, there will be lots of people experiencing anxiety, but everyone how you do that as a leader, how you deal with that when your team experiences anxiety Mm. and you do as well and you don't have the answers? Yes, and that was the hardest thing for me. So I think the first thing was they wanted someone to listen to them. So I think the worst thing you can do is not acknowledge it. 
because that's the first step. And I guess the second step is to say to them, what should we do about this or what can we do about this? And I found myself using the word we more and more. Mm. And I use it a lot more now than I ever did before, because I think it was about what can I do or what can you do? There is something about the word we that made people respond to it. It made it feel like we were in it together. So I found that that was really powerful. Again, this ties in with it. You know, I think at some point and in a crisis, leadership is about being on the shop floor. It's about being prepared to do anything. It's about asking people, what can I do to help? How can I help? And I found that there was no real hierarchy. You all sort of blended into one. So I would say to the nursing staff, is there someone that you need me to watch for you while you go and have a break? A lot of people would say that's something a consultant would never do. But actually, that's what they needed. And a lot of the time, being a leader is is looking at at what your team need. Mm. Um, And a lot of the time, it was just those basic things. Yeah, you know that concept, servant leadership? Yes. I can't remember who the author is. I will look it up. But, you know, this idea that you are there to serve and to serve in this situation might be you literally doing, you know, observing a patient, or it might be that it might also be that you're doing something that they don't like, but the purpose is all about serving them in this crisis situation. Absolutely. The other point I've put that links into that is that a lot of the time it felt like a battle and there was lots of conflict. So I work for the NHS and it is an organisation. So it's a bit like a business. Mm. Um, Different people have different priorities So a lot of the time, especially in the last few months, I felt torn because, you know, I'm a clinician and I look after my patients, but I've also then got, I don't know, you know, managers and exec teams floating down information that I then have to convey to my staff that I might not necessarily agree with or have been party to. So it's finding the right balance. And I guess sometimes for me, the last sort of six, eight months has felt about prioritising what is important to me and my team and my patients. And a lot of the time that was at odds at what was coming from the top, for example. For example, there was talk about our ward becoming a COVID positive ward. So any COVID positive patients would come to our ward. And I think on paper, that's a really good idea because you then isolate everyone to a ward, but you then have a set of staff who are only seeing positive patients. There's a really high risk of burnout on your staff. The impacts on it are just have to be more than, than just sort of what is best for and what works logistically. It was more about looking at what would work and what would work in a sustainable way. And a lot of the sort of solutions that were posed weren't sustainable. And we did have a lot of staff sickness for various reasons, for the fact that they got the virus, but because people were anxious and didn't want to come into work because people were carers and they couldn't come into work. So that was already a problem. So I was really mindful of having to look after the staff as well as the patients. Mm. And let's talk about something completely different. Do you Mm. think it's changed you as a parent? That's a really good question. I think it has. I think I have been a lot more honest with Daniel than I would have been before. So I have always felt like being a parent is about shielding Daniel from things that are horrible and things that aren't happy and things that might make him sad and I think I've come to realize that I can only do that to a certain extent 
And actually, sometimes I do just need to be honest with him and say, actually, this is mummy's job. It's really important, but she goes after and she looks after other people. And this is what I have to do. And I think it's made me more honest with Daniel. I think it's made me realise that there is always going to be an overlap between me being a doctor and me being a parent. So that Sunday was, I suddenly felt a bit like, oh, it's all merging into one. But I think given the job that I do and the fact that I work for the NHS, I think there will always be times, especially in a crisis, where they do think maybe I'm a bit more accepting of that and that I'm, Dan calls me a mummy doctor. And I think that's quite nice because actually that that sort of is what I am. I'm his mummy and I'm a doctor and they have an equal amount of impact on my life. Um, mm, interesting. And did you tell him that people have died on your ward? We talked about people being very sick. Never actually directly asked me if anyone had died. It was more about me dying. I think if he had asked me if people had died, I would have told him. So towards the end of COVID, I had a personal bereavement and it was someone that Daniel knew as well. And so that I think that was his first experience of death. So it didn't come in through work, it came another way. And so we did have to talk about about dying and what that meant and so on. But I think if he had asked me, I I would have been honest with him and I would have said, yes, people have died. So he would ask me if people were sick. He would ask me how many people were sick and how they were sick. And then there would always be a follow-on question from that that was, are you feeling sick, mummy? Are you feeling okay, mummy? But are you tired? What if that means you're sick, mummy? So I could I could see the way his brain was working. Mm. And again, a lot of it was about me dying. So not necessarily anyone else and not about my husband, because obviously he wasn't having the close contact. It was, mummy, I'm worried you're going to die. Mm. And so, then who is going to do this for me? Mm. So you must have gone through intense emotions through yes. this. Did you shield him from this or did you share that? And how did you deal with that? So at the very start, what I tried to do was protect him from it. So I would come home, I would cry in the car if I needed to before I walked into the house and I'd make sure that I walked into the house and I was smiling, even if that meant five minutes later, I'd go up to my bedroom and cry. So I tried really hard not to be sort of tearful in front of him. And then I just realised he was seeing it anyway. So he didn't need the tears to see that I was upset. He's my little boy. He knows me better than so many people and so he would say to me mummy I know you're sad and I just thought actually he knows this you know I don't want to be sobbing in front of him but at the same time he is aware and my biggest concern was that he would somehow think it was connected to him so I decided that actually if I was feeling really sad or I was feeling really angry or I was feeling really tired I would tell him I would just say actually dad mum's had a really bad day at work and I'm really angry And he would say, oh, what should we do? And I said, well, we don't have to do anything because everyone feels angry. So I think he has probably learned that emotions are very normal. And I do that with him now, even though we are at the moment over sort of the worst that we have been through. That's probably another way that I've changed my parenting. So I'm a lot more honest in sort of talking about my emotions and he is surprisingly embraced it. So, you know, I came back yesterday and said, oh, I feel really sad today. And he went, I knew it, mummy. He went, why don't we just go out in the garden and have a cuddle? And he has no idea how much of a difference that makes for me. And so I guess he has shown me 
how to manage my emotions and how that it's okay to be sad and angry because I have been very angry about a lot of things through all of this. And I've been really frustrated. So I think he has shown me that they are okay. Mm. He sounds like a very, very special boy. Daniel is an amazing little boy. So he's seven. He's a lot like me. He's very sensitive. He's really loving. He's very active, obviously, because he's a boy. He never sleeps. He has taught me so much through all of this. I didn't realise he had the potential to. So he has taught me a lot about how I should be able to manage or I can manage my emotions. That has come from him. Mm. And do you think that has influenced you, how you acted with your team on the board during that period? Did. It's a really good point because one of the other points I've put on my list is I realised that really small acts of kindness go a really long way. So in the last eight weeks, so much of what we have done has been negative. There has been deaths on the ward. There has been criticism. There has been constant battles with PPE. So a lot of it has felt very negative. And so I realised that picking up on the little positives are really important. So it was little things like if we had a good handover and someone had said they'd done something, I would make sure that I would go back to my office and send them an email and copy in their line manager just to acknowledge that they had done something. And just doing that once a day, for example, which took me, what, five minutes, just made all the difference. So whenever I would get feedback from family, I would make sure they all sort of got the emails and they saw them. And, you know, it was little things like I remember coming in sort of midway and having ordered lots of hand cream, which sounds really ridiculous. And everyone was looking for antibacterial. But when you wash your hands so many times, they get really, really dry. So I bought in these little hand creams. I'd ordered them online. I was really happy I'd found them. And so I gave them out to the nursing staff and the healthcare assistants. And they were so, so happy. Everyone was bouncing that day and they still mention it even up to now. So I think little acts of kindness go such a long way, especially when you are surrounded by such negativity. And, you know, when you are surrounded by death and illness. And I think those little things just make all the difference. I think they make or if you don't have them, they break a team. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And I want to talk about guilt as well. It seems to be a topic that goes through many podcast and I'm interested in your take on it do you feel guilty about work when you're with Dan or when you think you should be with Dan and vice versa yeah I had postnatal depression with Daniel I was really unwell after he was born and so I have always held a lot of guilt and the guilt was about not being emotionally there for him in the first sort of few months of his life um, about not eating. It was all those sort of usual things. And then I went back to work and I suddenly realised that I liked work and I enjoyed it. And I, at the time it felt awful. I enjoyed the time away and being a different person. So guilt has always been an issue for me. And yes, during this, I have been at work. Had I've needed to work in the evenings a bit more. I have needed to check my emails on the weekend. I have, when we're in the middle of something, I have needed to sort of go and deal with it. So yes, there has been guilt and vice versa. So I only work a a certain number of sessions a week because the other sessions I'm with Dan. So when I've been at home and I know that my team are still there and struggling and there are 10 things going on and I can't be there, I have felt guilty. I think I've accepted that I... I'm one of those people that will probably always feel a bit guilty. I will always feel like I'm not doing either one 
particularly well or not completely. But I think what I found is various sort of resources and things that make that easier. So the Leaders Plus program has made me realise wanting both a bad thing. I surround myself with people, again, that show me they have done it and so I can do it. I've got a very supportive family. I've got a really good set of friends. A lot of my friends are mums and career women. So that is helpful. So I guess there's a little bit of acceptance that... I will possibly always feel the guilt. It was nowhere near as bad as it used to be. And there's also sort of knowing that Daniel sees me as more than just his mum. He sees me as someone that helps other people. I really do think that that is part of the reason he's so kind and loving because he does what he mirrors. So I think that has, I tell myself that splitting myself in the two benefits me and him. Mm. And there is something really freeing, like you say, about the idea of just accepting that we do have guilt and it's probably part of us because we've all been socialized. Well, maybe not you, but I definitely definitely socialized with an ideal mother, what an ideal mother does. And I don't quite live up to that. So the idea of just embracing the guilt, accepting it's there, but not be led by it. My dad went out to work sort of all the time and that's in my head was always what a mum was like so I've sort of had the same thing and I think I've said this to you before and I found it difficult at school because there are the stay-at-home mums who always go to everything who are always able to be there and there are people like me who have to pick and choose what they go to for Daniel because actually I can't go to everything So there is this sort of guilt from that aspect as well. It's liberating. I think I know that I will always feel guilty. It will always be difficult. But I also know a lot of my postnatal depression arose from that guilt. So I can see how it is negative and it isn't productive. Mm. So it's there, but I try not to dwell on it and ruminate on it. Mm. Yeah, thank you for being so open in sharing that because so many um, experience postnatal depression and I think we're just not talking enough about it and understanding that it is something so normal that happens so many people is incredibly I mean especially people like me and whoever people that have a sort of high functioning career women who are used to being in control of things used to knowing the answer used to having lists and those sorts of things and suddenly this baby comes along and you can't do all the things that you're supposed to so Daniel came three weeks early. He wouldn't breastfeed. He was very sick after he was born. He had colic. So there were all these things that I just could not control. And for someone like me, where my job is all about those things, I was suddenly plucked out of my comfort zone into something else. So being a mum in the biggest challenge of my life. And, you know, I've sat exams. I've been in A&E and done trauma. But being that new mum was the scariest place that I've ever been. And, and I just feel really passionate that absolutely we should be talking about it more. And I suspect there are lots and lots of women out there, working women, successful women that feel like they are completely out of their depth and feel like they're not the right sort of mother. And that makes me really sad because I think if I hadn't had that, I would have enjoyed my experience as a new mum so much more. Yeah, I can imagine. And I couldn't agree more with you. I think we just need to give ourselves permission to do both the work we love and spend time with the children that we love. And, you know, but obviously it is something we have to always remind ourselves of. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, you know, one thing that really has stuck with me and I was really surprised 
with. I expected to remember when it all the leaders program has just started when mm. the whole situation hit, and I fully expected I have to admit for all the NHS fellows to say, right, let's postpone it for us and join the next year again. But none of them did. And you did all the pre-work, you joined the sessions, you're super engaged. I'm just interested. That was not what I expected of someone in a crisis. And yet you did that. I think for me, Leaders Plus has been sort of an outlet. So it has been something that is different. It hasn't been dealing with COVID and dealing with really sick patients on my ward. It's been dealing with people who aren't doctors, which is great, who are mothers and who have challenges, who aren't the same as me, but have really similar challenges. So we sort of had like a group Microsoft Teams call the other day. Someone saying something, and I think she works in banking or something, but I just totally related to it. I know exactly what you mean. So For me, it didn't feel like Work Leaders Plus. It felt like an outlet. So I looked forward to things like that. On a really dark day where I had dealt with lots and lots of sick people, it felt like it was me time and it made it more sort of, I gave myself permission to have that me time. And I can't sort of say enough how powerful it is to meet people like people that have been in the same situation as you, who are different walks of life as you. There is something so powerful about having all those people with the same aim or vision or outlook as you in the same room or in the same vicinity. I think it's incredibly powerful and it gives you permission. It gives you permission to be like that. I think and human nature is that we look to be to be given permission. You know, that's how society works. So I think that's what Leaders Plus did for me at a time when I really needed it. You know, I think it helped me immensely. I said, get away from just the intensity of the work on the ward. And it helped me see that there was life outside of my 16-bedded ward, which was overrun with really anxious staff and really sick patients. I was able to see that there was life outside of that. Mm. So thank you to you. Mm. Well, thank you. And it's been a real pleasure to have you as part of the court. I think there's something in there which actually surprises me in, in that in a way you find respite mm. in doing things that are completely different. I mean, you as a mental health expert probably know this, but <laughs> I'm just having this little aha moment that actually in a crisis, it's not a bad idea to find a place, right now a virtual place, where you are drawn into something completely different and you're connecting with people who are completely different, but also very similar. Yeah, and you will know that sort of four or five weeks ago, I was sort of burnt myself out so it was coming and everyone could see it was coming I've had annual leave cancelled at the start of Covid so I've sort of been working fairly straight for a number of weeks and really stressful and there'd been sort of the ongoing conflict and battling with and so on and sort of four or five weeks ago I came into work one day I went downstairs to the ward came back up again and I had 60 emails in about 20 minutes well, and I just, sorry just come again 60 yeah. or six? 60 60 Wow. In about 20 minutes. And I looked at my computer and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I mean, your job is not an email job. That's the other thing, right? Your job. Uh, exactly. Mm. I spend so much of my time answering emails. So I literally just looked at my screen and I just thought, I've got a water full of patients downstairs. I've now got 16 new ones. I've still got about 200 to tackle from yesterday. I just thought, I actually can't do this anymore. So I rang my clinical direction and just said, I can't do it. I went, I just, I don't know what's happened. I just can't. It's like I stopped functioning. It's Mm. the only way I can describe it. And I went home and I was off for a week and a bit. And for the first three days, I slept. 
I must have slept about 18 hours every day. And my husband was like, are you sure you haven't got COVID? But I was exhausted. And so I slept for 18 hours a day. And Dan was saying, oh, what's wrong? And I just said, Dan, I'm really tired. So for those first three or four days, I just slept. And then I started to function a bit more. But it was literally like something had just switched off. I can't explain it. Mm. You know, just I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. Um, And it ties into what you're saying. I think if I've learned anything from this, it's that I'm not invincible. I can't keep going at some point. And I probably should have done it earlier. I should have stopped. And I should have thought, what can I do? It didn't need to be go running or do lots of exercise. I just needed a space and time. And I get, especially in the last sort of four, Leaders Plus has been what has supplied that for me because I've loved meeting other people, meeting people that do different things, seeing babies. It's just been so nice. So I think that's what it provided for me. I think it provided an outlet and some respite because it was about me. Mm. It sounds like in a very strange way, sorry, it is not politically correct to say, but in a very strange way, you've become immensely stronger and braver and not maybe not become but in a way like all your brilliant mm. quality that have shown and I think all of us who don't have to be in this situation will only look at someone like you with awe and admiration and then at the same time it sounds like you got to know yourself better because you were pushed to a place where most of us never get pushed to with that sort of situation. I'm such a regular person. Yes, I'm a doctor, but that's what I signed up to do. I did the study for it. It's what I always wanted to do. I knew what it involved. So I'm so regular. And I think what has struck me is how it's impacted other people and how we've all found ways of managing it. Who would have thought you'd be able to work from home and do like eight virtual meetings with a three-year-old? So I talked to all these girls on Leaders Plus and women. They're doing these jobs with their kids there and they're trying to homeschool them as well. So I think everyone has, it's affected people in different ways. And I think I felt just sort of in awe of people. And I think it's helped me grow. So I think you're absolutely right. I know myself better. I sort of know my limits better. I don't feel like I have to be a certain type of leader anymore. I feel like I can be me. And a lot of the time feedback I have got is that I am too unboundaried and I'm too warm and those sorts of things with patients and with staff. But actually, I'm happy to be that person. What has got us through the last sort of eight, 10 weeks is being that person. So I feel like I don't need to be the sort of leader that other people say I should be anymore. I am going to do what works for me and clearly it works for people around me. And I guess that's sort of what I said to some of the other leaders, Leader Plus fellows the other day, just be who you are. People will see that it's genuine and authentic and it's not pretentious. And I think that in itself makes you such a powerful leader. So I guess that's, I feel happier to now be the sort of leader. And that goes for for being a mum as well. I will be the sort of mum that I am. It's not going to be the sort of mum that that is a stay-at-home mum. It's not going to be this. I may do things differently, but actually that's what works for me and that's what works for Dan. And so I guess it sort of translates to my personal life as well. I guess I accept me a bit more. So I feel very different from the girl seven years ago who was feeling judged about not breastfeeding. So yeah, I think it's a growth process, but I'm just someone very regular. I'm sure there, you know, there are lots of people that have tackled this and have had lots of bereavements and live in small flats and don't have a garden to play with their children. There are so many different people that have experienced different things. And I look in, they are the people that I look in awe of as 
but it's so difficult for everyone mm, very true yes so I would love to know from you what you think employers should do to change the workplace for parents following this COVID crisis I think workplace parents are the strength and the backbone of jobs and the running of organizations most of the people I work with are parents or carers and so they form a massive part of the workforce and if you have a happy and supported and sort of liberated workforce you know that your productivity is going to increase and it's not about how many hours someone does it's about what comes out of the other end so I think we need to work differently. I think this is what this has shown us, that actually we can work differently if we have to. And we have to take the good things from this because otherwise, what was the point? So we have to take the fact that people can work more flexibly, that your employee is just not your employee. They are a mum or a wife or a carer of some sort. They're not just boxes of people that work they have lives and I think we need to acknowledge that and personal that because someone's needs and life is going to be very different from the next ones and they are going to need different things and I just think if we did that in just any sort of organization that's the sort of organization that I want to work in you know one where people feel valued people feel supported it would be an incredible organization you would reap benefits from it Mm. Um, So I think there is something about realising that there is more to someone than just the nine to five that they work. And that is going to impact on their work life because we're not robots. Mm, That's very true. Laura Harrison, who is one of the earlier podcast episodes, she Mm. talks about human led organizations or something like that but just this idea that there's a human with all Mm. all the things that are going on in their lives who is joining you not just an employee absolutely because the work is going to be a small aspect of someone an aspect of someone's life it's not going to be their whole life and you can't not have those parts interact with each other it's not possible there is going to be some overlap there is going to be some conflict so why don't we acknowledge that and work with it not ignore it Mm, that's very you know it, it seems really basic when I'm saying it but it would make such a difference definitely definitely I want to finish off with three practical things that you think someone who's leading in a crisis right now and at the same time has responsibility for a young child could try doing this week to help them emerge well out of it so that's a difficult question let me think so I guess my first one is is be kind not just to obviously like I've said your staff and your child but to yourself So I think a practical thing is you need to have a bit of time to yourself every day, even if that is 10 or 15 minutes, but it needs to be you time when you're not doing the dishes, when you're not looking after the child and when you're not doing your work. So that would be one thing. The second thing would be that, and it sounds a bit corny, but that things do pass. So bad days are bad days, but they don't mean the next 200 days are going to be bad. So if you've had a bad day and I'm the worst person at this, park it. If you can take anything away from it, do. But if you can't, it's a day. There are lots and lots of days ahead. Just park it. And the third thing I think, and I've started doing this more and more, I have a little book where I write 
the good things that have happened or the good things that people have said to me. So if I've had feedback from patients or if someone has said something nice or done something for me, I put the date and I put the little thing that someone has said or done. So I now have a little book of all those things. So when I have that bad day and that day when I think, God, what? I don't even know why I woke up this morning. It gives me something to look in and it makes me realise that human nature is that we ignore all the good things that happen and we focus on the bad things. So have that little notepad or have that little book because you will find out it fills up really, really quickly, a lot quicker than if you were to pick up on all the bad things that people said about you. So I think those three things. Mm, that's brilliant. I love the little notebook. Of it's it's a brilliant I idea. I do actually have that notebook. And when I know that people are struggling a little bit, they get a notebook and I put the first message in it. So I put the date and I will put what I think and why I've given them this and I'll sign it. And then they have to carry on using the notebook. Oh, fantastic. That's such a kind thing to do. And I'm sure all your staff and patients really appreciate it. Is there anything else that you wanted to say to the listeners before we close the podcast? It's been a very, very difficult time for everyone. I don't think that there are any particular heroes. We talk about NHS heroes, but I think you could talk to most people in the NHS and they don't feel like heroes. We signed up to do this. It's been a really difficult time. And I think we're probably all heroes in our own right because we've managed to find a way. And I guess to the women out there who have children and who are working, you can totally do it. You don't need permission to do it. And it's absolutely okay to do it. And I think someone said to me once, I think you're awesome. And so I think that's a really nice word. So I think if you're a woman and you have a child and you have a career and you are trying to be a leader, then I think that is pretty awesome. Definitely. And I would also add all the dads who are pushing the boundaries right now and who are going against the stereotypes of the traditional breadwinner role to that as well. Absolutely. It's really, it's really fantastic to see so many people moving above and beyond the stereotypes. Yeah, but it's been wonderful to chat to you properly, Suhana. Thank you so much. If people want to find you online, where can they do so? So I am on Twitter. I think I'm Suhana Ahmed 10. I am on LinkedIn under Suhana Ahmed, but it is a really old profile. So it's probably from about six years ago. So on my to-do list is to update my profile. So I will do that. And then you can contact me by my email address if you need. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you so much, Suhana. And I look forward to speaking to you at the next session, hopefully. Lovely. Thanks, Farina. You take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening today. I want to spread this message that it is absolutely okay to love your ambitious career and love your children at the same time. And I need your help to achieve this. I would love to make a difference to more people and reach thousand listeners by September for this podcast. So if this podcast has helped you in any way, please do take a moment to share it with five of your friends. And of course, do share it on social media. And like with any podcast, five stars reviews really help with the visibility and um, also if you haven't already do sign up to our newsletters on www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter for inspiration and practical tips until next time have a wonderful week <laughs>